Our text for today comes from Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. It's good to be with you this week. I was not here last week for those of you who noticed that uh, Ashley spoke last week. Uh, I was in a 17-2-hour holding pattern. Uh, I couldn't speak. I was not allowed to speak. They don't allow you to speak at this particular retreat, and I couldn't have my phone. I did pretty good at the not talking part. I did horrible at the phone part. Uh, I was texting my wife a lot, uh, saying things like, they're not letting me talk. (laughs) And can I talk to you when I get home? Uh, And what's the score of the Iowa game? Uh, these are all things that I texted my wife, uh, and it was, but it was a great event, but I, to be honest with you, am very, very happy to be back uh, with you all this morning. This feels far more natural to me than being away on a Sunday morning. It's, it's a blessing to be able to do this with my life, so thank you. All right, so today we are picking up our third series in a, uh, our third Sunday in a series we're calling Mere Christianity, which if you're uh, a reader, you know is based on the book by C.S. Lewis, called Mere Christianity. In this series, we are tackling uh, in four weeks some of the issues that Lewis goes through in his book. We're not necessarily preaching the book, but we want to see these kind of ideas through Lewis's lens, as it were, to help us better understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, uh, I was really happy that we all the books that we ordered and put back on the coffee bar were gone. So did, who grabbed a book? Uh, you can just raise your hand. Who grabbed a mere Christianity? Awesome, awesome. I hope you're reading those. If you don't, if you want one of those and you're like, shoot, they were all gone, come see me after church. I think I can save you like five cents off of what it is on Amazon. But five cents, you know? It's great. Five cents. You can get like seven more minutes if you park at a parking meter. Uh, it'll be great. So, uh, this, like I said, this is a series about questions, uh, the questions of the faith questions of the faith. And uh, the point of it is to help us to go a little bit deeper into uh, understanding what it is that Christians believe. Now, if you're in this place and you're not necessarily, you're you're trying to explore what it is that Christians believe, this is a good series for you. And if you're in this place and you are a follower of Jesus, it might also be good to dig a little deeper to figure out what's the foundation of what I think? Why, why do I do these things? What What is it about following Jesus that uh, asks my life to conform into these patterns? And so that's what we're doing today. You know, the reality of the faith, the reality of the Christian faith, is that there are big questions. There are big questions. And the, the process of walking out one's faith in Christ is always this process of discovery, of new things, new ideas, new challenges. And if we shut our brains off, as it were, and just say, this is what I believe, I'm going to close my eyes and believe it, we will, our, our, our souls will kind of shrink. You know, the process of following Jesus is one that should 
should broaden our minds and our hearts as we go. And so the hope is that as we explore, as we dig, as we, as we look at the scriptures anew, that, that our hearts and our horizons would be broadened to follow Jesus with our eyes open. Does that make sense? What we, what we don't want is a group of people who have j- are just so locked in and so insular that, that we can't uh, live in the broader world, that, that we can't engage with, uh, with our faith out into culture. And so today, we're going to be looking at one of the areas of Christian faith that, to be honest with you, is, is uh, probably one of the main gripes that people have about Christianity, about what it means to follow Jesus. One of the areas that Christians probably get the most, uh, get given the most of a hard time, and that is this idea of rules, of rules, that Christianity, that following Jesus is all about rules, rules about what I should do with my body, rules about what I should be watching, rules about what I should eat or drink, rules about how much money I should spend, rules about what I, uh, what I should be doing with my free time, rules about how much I should pray or read my Bible, rules about being kind, rules, rules, rules. I grew up in a home where my parents were followers of Jesus and they were a part of a church community. And I knew that another kid that I uh, ran into at the playground or at school had parents who also followed Jesus and uh, were a part of a church community if that kid was not allowed to watch The Simpsons. Because I was not allowed to watch The Simpsons. The Simpsons was, for me, a kind of litmus test to determine who was and was not a Christian. Um, It still is, just for the record. Uh, (laughs) This is no no lie. I went to... uh, I went to a birthday party when I was like in first grade of this little girl, and all of the kids as a parting gift got a little Bart Simpson's doll. And I remember vividly going, I got to hide this from my parents. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's kind of crazy. And this is what we think religions do, don't we? This is inherently what we think religions do. We think they construct rules to determine who is in and who is out, Right? This is what religions do, because most religions are systems of belief that tell humanity how to live or help us to determine what is right and what is wrong. And this is the way most people think about Christianity. When, when you get down to brass tacks, what people mostly think about Christianity is that it's a moral system, right? But in our day, it's the kind of ruliness of the faith that drives people away, that keeps people at arm's distance I think, how many times have we seen a young person who grew up in a, in a, in a system where r- rules were very heavy, right? And as soon as they get out from under their house, go crazy, right? They go in the exact opposite direction. So something is wrong, isn't it? Something is wrong. Something has taken the vitality and the life that should be associated with following Jesus and has caused us to condense it down to simple rule following. What is that? Christianity has been lumped in as just another of these kind of antiquated religions that was trying to get power over people by asking them to conform their lives to a set of somewhat arbitrary moral rules that don't really have that much meaning anymore, right? This is what we think. But in our day, following a rule for a rule's rule's sake no longer holds water. There might have been a day in which that was valuable, but in our day, it is not. You know, uh, 
simply living in line with a moral standard because an authority tells you to is not something that anyone does in our culture any longer, right? Because we're inherently suspicious of authority. And so it seems that if we're going to be authentic followers of Jesus and, em- and embrace the, that way of life, that there is something more, something deeper that has to be uncovered about this thing called following Jesus. That um, that has to be about something more than just rules meant to, meant to control our behavior. And it's, it's incumbent upon us then to dig into this a little bit and determine why the God of the Bible does ask his people to observe certain moral standards of life and conduct. Why, why does God ask this of people in the scriptures? And determine why then that God is asking us to do this as a means of stepping into life, not just of following rules, just following rules for rules' sake. Because if you're just following rules for rules' sake, if you're just uh, observing a religion that was passed down to you by your family, that will grow stale, won't it, really quickly. It'll grow stale very quickly. And so today we're going to talk about the why of Christian morality. Sounds like a fun service, uh, service, doesn't it? The why of Christian morality. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I think I'm okay at speaking. I'm bad at sermon titles. Uh, and talks, but we're, specifically we're going to talk about two areas that Lewis tackles um, within the context of Christian morality, which is uh, sex and pride. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can turn over to Colossians, to our teaching text for today, Colossians 3, 5 through 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, I suggest you either pull it up on your phone or grab one out of the seat in front of you because we will be looking at that text in depth and it will be good for you to follow along and be able to reference what's being said there. Uh, yeah, just keep your thumb in uh, Colossians 3. So Paul, in our teaching text for today, says, put to death whatever belongs to the earthly nature. This is something that Paul says. And then he lists a bunch of stuff like sexual immorality, greed, lying, anger, malice, filthy language. Do you see that in the text there? The list is pretty extensive. It's actually two lists. He gives a list of things you should avoid, and then he talks a little bit, and then he gives another list of things that you shouldn't do. And he concludes that passage with this really kind of interesting phrase, a phrase that we're not particularly familiar with, I think. He says this, put off the old self and put on the new self. Put off the old self and put on the new self. Implying that by putting to death those sins that he lists in that passage uh, is not simply about following rules, that there's something deeper going on there. He does not say, do these things and don't uh, do these things and don't do these other things, and then you will meet the standard and everything will be okay, right? That's not what Paul says here. He says, be transformed. Be transformed, which is an interesting phrase. Put on a new self. And the idea here is that uh, this transformation would not simply be an external thing. It wouldn't be something that we simply conform to in our external habits and activities, but rather that it be an internal thing, that it, that it be a change that begins on the inside of us. It's actually becoming, Paul would say, a, it's about becoming a whole new person, a whole new person, a new person that is no longer, no longer formed in the image of the world, but in the image and likeness of the Creator. The C.S. Lewis uh, puts it this way, We might think that God wanted simple obedience 
to a set of rules, whereas he really wants a people of a particular sort. And in another place, this is even better. Lewis says it this way. Christian morality claims to be a technique for putting the human machine right. For putting the human machine right. You see, the fundamental claim of the Christian faith is that we humans have all gone astray, right? That because of our propensity to sin, we have a natural proclivity. Propensity and proclivity in the same sentence is difficult, FYI. For living in ways that run counter to how God actually intends us to live. We, we have this innate desire to want to live in ways that are counter to the way that God would have us to live. Have any of you, I'm sure you have, have any of you seen an athlete, usually a football player, who's uh, got a, a spinal cord injury? I think it happened in the, the Michigan game yesterday. It's usually football. When, whenever this happens, this player who was once fast and agile now has to undergo this process of relearning the skills that they used to be able to do without even thinking, right? And through intentional work and effort, uh, phys- uh, doctors and physios teach this person uh, how to walk again, how to do the things that they used to do naturally. They have to now learn step by step. They used to do it as second nature, right? Running and tackling and moving. And now, because of this injury, they have to relearn. And that relearning process is difficult. Now, Christianity claims that sin is like this debilitating injury that warped our sense of right and wrong. But it also took away our very capacity or ability to live out our created purpose. We've all been injured, in a sense. And in order to relearn what it means to be the people God created us to be, we need help from these kind of moral techniques, these moral teachings, to put the machine right, as it were. And Scripture talks about this process in a lot of different ways. Paul talks about it in our teaching text in Galatians when he says, put on the new self, in verse 10, right? And he says, in that same sentence in verse 10, he also says this, be renewed in the knowledge, in the image of the Creator. Now, there are some key words here that you need to hear if you're really going to understand what Paul is getting at, when he, what, he's, what he's actually saying in verse 10. Specifically, the words image, knowledge, and creator. Paul here is bringing back, uh, bringing back to the minds of his readers the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve were originally created in the image, right, of God. But they turned away from that image when they sought after a different type of knowledge, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they sought to be equal with God, knowing good and evil for themselves, right? This is what they did. And this is kind of true of all of us, isn't it? We all seek to construct for ourselves our own moral knowledge, determining what is right and what is wrong for me. We all want to do this. We have all departed from the total plan of God in different ways, and each of us has set out to determine for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Only the way that we determine that has a lot more to do with what we think is best or what feels good in the moment, rather than based on what God's plan for human flourishing. Because we don't tend to have knowledge of what's good for everyone, right? You see, we have been injured And what we think is running is actually kind of limping along, morally. And God, in his grace, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, wants to show us how to really run again. And so in Christ, God calls us back to our original created intent and purpose. 
to step into what at first feels so new and so different that it could seem like putting on a whole new self, a whole new way of life, but is actually just how we were, we were created to function in the first place. You see, Christian morality is not about following rules. It's really not. It's about living into the fullness of life that we are created for. That's what it is. It is, it is about human flourishing. Human flourishing. But this still doesn't stop us from str struggling with this kind of moral order, does it? Some of the things that God asks of his people morally still feel difficult, even backwards at times. But in following Jesus, we learn that to live in line with the moral grain of the universe is actually the best way to live. This is what we learn. A way that leads to freedom and joy. But this is probably best illustrated by looking at the moral ideas that Lewis uh, puts forward. Because we can talk about morality in this kind of big uh, picture type of way. But until we get down to the nitty gritty of it, I, I, I think it's harder to see. So, first, human sexuality. Human sexuality. And second, pride. Now, Lewis uh, talks about a number of things in his book and uh, a number of these issues of uh, Christian morality. And so I suggest that you look and read them all. But these two, I think, are particularly compelling. First, because uh, human sexuality is probably the, it's the hot-button issue of our day, I would say. And secondly, because uh, his chapter on pride, his very short chapter on pride, you can read it in probably 10 minutes, uh, is one of the top five chapters of any book I've ever read, period. So, so today, uh, we're going we're gonna to tackle these two particular issues uh, kind of seen through the lens of C.S. Lewis. So, first, human sexuality. Um, is there any? No, we're good. Great. I was just going to say if there's anybody younger and they're... Is there, is there anybody younger and their parents don't want them to hear this? Sorry. Uh, maybe this would be a good uh, time. We'll speak in vagaries. Uh, now, uh, now, Lewis notes in his book, uh, and I want to make clear that this is not, human sexuality is not the central piece of Christian morality. It's just not. It's, it, it is not the central thing. It, it is serious and it is important, but it is not central. It is not central. To, uh, too many have made sex the center of Christian morality. When that, uh, and when that happens, all kinds of things go wrong, actually. When this happens, Christians get a bad rap, actually. <laughs> they get a bad rap. And it makes us unable to even talk about these issues in a constructive way. It, is simply, uh, it simply becomes a taboo that needs to be avoided, right? That we can't uh, talk to either, about our, uh, either to our children or to our friends, right? And, and, it, and it keeps us kind of repressed. It keeps us separate. And when we make uh, human sexuality the center of our moral thinking, or of our moral reasoning, all kinds of things go awry because it was never meant to be the center of what we think about when we think about Christian morality. Because God wants us to be healthy people, and he wants us to think about these things in healthy ways. And the point of out, and I just want to say from the beginning, the point of outlining this is not uh, about bringing guilt on anybody. I know everybody has a, has a diverse uh, set of experiences as it relates to this. And the, uh, and, the, and the truth of the matter is, is that everyone has missed the mark in some way, shape, or form. And so the point of delving into this is not to bring guilt, is not to, to ask simply for, some for us to conform to an external standard, but rather uh, to bring to light those things in our, in our own hearts that might, not be, uh, might have missed the mark a little bit so that we can get 
back on track so that we can become the people who uh, God longs us and created us to be. So this is what uh, this is what we're going to endeavor to do today. We don't want to live hidden and fractured lives. We want to bring everything we everything we do and everything we are into the light of Jesus and allow that to be healed. That's the point. So now ask any person what they think about human sexuality, and they will probably just say what the, what Christians think about this, and they'll probably say, "Don't do it." Right? That's what that's the that's the general. That's the general orientation. But in Lewis's language, the things that Christians teach along these lines is this interesting word called chastity. Chastity. I I knew a girl named Chastity growing up, but but that word doesn't make much sense to me. Now, chastity is an old word that just just means that, uh, that sex should remain within the bonds of marriage. Lewis puts it this way, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or total abstinence. Now, whether you think this idea is right or even attainable is another thing altogether, isn't it? And let's be totally frank, as Lewis is, this belief is seen as, in our culture, nearly totally pointless. Uh, and, and there is virtually no one who abides by this particular virtue, even if they claim to believe it. And the question is, why? Why? Why does this moral standard Christians b- believe was designed by God seem so hard to live? Why is that? And Lewis, even before the days of the internet and magazines and Instagram, was already at the forefront of a so- society that was quickly moving to jettison all forms of this virtue, this virtue of chastity. And he lays out three reasons that I think are really pertinent for us today, why this becomes difficult, why this is so difficult. Uh, And I just wanted to walk through those briefly. Reason number one, he says, we live in a time where everything and everyone is telling us that the indulgence of our sexual desire is natural, normal, and healthy. And the lie that we believe is the suggestion that any act to which we are tempted at a given moment, is also healthy and normal. But we know this to not be the case with other urges, right? Other desires. No one believes that every time I desire food, I should eat food. I would be a walking nacho, like a a, a physical walking nacho. Uh, We believe that uh, all all forms of human desires need to be channeled, right? They need to be they need to be uh, curtailed at times and, and channeled in healthy directions. And learning to focus and discipline ourselves in the face of these desires, we believe, actually makes us better people, doesn't it? It makes us better people. We compliment people who have lear- learned to master other, uh, other of their natural desires and urges, but we, but we, are, uh, but we let this uh, des- sexual desire run amok. It's not logical, actually. Any healthy desire uh, that we let run wild turns into an unhealthy thing. just does. And so it's, it's important, it's incumbent upon us to learn what the healthy channeling of all our desires are, even this one. But we live in a culture that says, if you feel it, do it, right? We really do. So that's number one. Number two, we believe that a Christian sex, sexual ethic is impossible. We believe it's impossible. I think, I think many people do. So why even try, right? But it's not impossible. 
tens of thousands of people throughout all of human history have learned through effort and time and however imperfectly to live into this reality. Very often what God first helps us towards when we're attempting to uh, live into this virtue is not the power to overcome it, but rather the power to all, uh, of always trying again, of always trying to get back up, of always learning to live into the standard that Christ calls us to. Not so that we can simply live up to a standard, but so that we can be the people God created us, created us to be. So that's number two. And number three, just quickly, suppression is not repression. There's this common idea that if, if you don't lean into every urge you have, that you're repressing this urge and that it will come out sideways, right? So repression is what happens when something happens to you when you're a child and you don't want to face it. Suppression is a normal and natural act. Lewis, uh, Lewis says this, Those who are seriously attempting chastity are more conscientious and soon know a great deal more about their own sexuality than anyone else. The reason this is true is because to simply give in to an urge at all times is not to actually know the thing. Does it make sense? But rather, uh, to be able to channel, to focus, to, uh, to restrain oneself at appropriate times is to know oneself in a, in a far more intimate way than simply to always be giving in to some urge. I would never know what my appetite was really like if every time I wanted to, I ate nachos, right? Or tacos, or any kind, anything with hot sauce on it, really. Um, it, would never, it would never be the case, would it? But yet, uh, but yet there is this, but there, suppression is not repression. It simply isn't. Suppression or, or channeling or uh, proper restraint even is probably a healthy way to put it, is a healthy and normal thing that we all need to learn in every facet of our lives. And as it pertains to human sexuality, it is also incredibly important. It's important to be a health, in order to be a healthy person, one must, must learn restraint within all facets of human urges and desires. So that's that. So we'll move on here to pride, to pride. As I said earlier, Lewis's chapter on pride is probably, I would argue, one of the top three or four uh, chapters of any book I've ever read in my whole life. He is so penetrating with the way that he is able to talk about pride, the way he's able to uh, kind of illuminate what pride is and what it does inside of us. You read the chapter and you're just going, oh my gosh, he's nailing me, right? Like you feel so prideful after reading this chapter of this book because he does such a wonderful job of showing us what pride actually is. So if you haven't, read it. Um, it will inevitably expose areas of your life where you carry or harbor pride. And Lewis says this really interesting thing. He says, unlike uh, sex that most people make the center of uh, Christian moral reasoning, pride actually is the big one. It is the great sin, the sin from which all other sins find their root. He has this really long quote that's really good that I'm going to read now. He says, I now come to the part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians even imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think 
I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in, unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking about is pride or self-conceit. The virtue opposed to it in Christian morality is called humility. It's called humility. Lewis goes on to help us identify pride in our own lives. He talks about the way that pride is, at its root is competitive, right? Pride is not about simply beating somebody all the time, but it's always about being one better than everyone else in our, in our environment. That pride is inherently competitive. And there's this, when, when he said that, it called out this thing in me, this, this like inherent competitiveness that I feel at times. And, and he talks also in this passage about what true humility looks like, what true humility looks like. And, and this, for me, is probably the most telling part of his passage, because the scriptures laud two characters primarily who are, who are set out, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, who are, who are spoken of as the most humble people ever. The first is Moses, which uh, Christians believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, or at least was integral in the writing of the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. And it's actually in the Pentateuch that it says Moses was the most humble person in the world. So if that's true, Moses wrote, Moses is the most humble person in the world, <laughs> which doesn't work, but we're going to go with it. And the second is Jesus. The second is Jesus. So the, the fundamental idea here is that true humility, true humility is not just thinking less of oneself, but rather that true humility, the, the type of humility that militates against pride, is not uh, thinking less of yourself. Rather, it is thinking of yourself less. Or true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is not thinking of yourself at all. It is not thinking of yourself at all. This is what Lewis says about some, if, he, if you were to come across a humble person. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be the sort of greasy or smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I want to call people chap more often, so just live with it. To be free of pride is to bring us closer to this ideal of humility, of putting on, as Paul says, of putting on the new self that is renewed in our minds and in our thinking, and ridding ourselves of pride, of getting rid of this desire to have ourselves be first, right? To have ourselves be over and above others. It frees us of this competitiveness. It frees us in incalculable ways to serve and love God and love others with our whole heart. Because if you're always, if, you're, if pride has taken over your life, if you're always uh, seeking after your own self-interest, if you're always seeking to be better than the other, you will never actually be able to serve. You will never actually be able to serve. 
And really, to be free of pride is to live a kind of easy life, is to live a kind of easy life, because you're not thinking about yourself. Think about, all of, think about all the difficulty you've run into in your life every time somebody mistreats you and you're mad about it, right? How much difficulty does, do we cause ourselves in our own life when pride causes us to be offended and hurt? Now, I'm not saying you can't be offended and hurt, right? But I am saying that there is an inordinate pride that dwells within most of our hearts that keeps us in unhappy places because we want to, people to see us as important or valuable, Right? And to put pride away in this sense causes us to live a far easier, less anxious life. There's a, a columnist, he writes for the New York Times, his name is David Brooks. Uh, he's written a couple books, but uh, in one particular article th that he wrote that I read this week, he was talking about people who um, live lives of service and sacrifice. And he was doing this uh, expose on people who have given themselves, whether it be to feeding programs or to uh, to clean water, or what, whatever it may be. People who have dedicated their lives to the service of others. And this is what he says about them in this short article. He, he says, we see them tirelessly serving the poor or risking their lives for democracy and think they are performing great acts of self-sacrifice. But it doesn't feel that way to them. It feels like the activation of their own nature. Doing that work seems to them as ordinary as doing the dishes. Something needed to be done, so they did it. You see, for one to be truly humble, self-sacrifice does not necessarily have to, for the truly humble, self-sacrifice does not necessarily have to feel like self-sacrifice, actually. Because we are not thinking about ourselves. And again, the picture of, comes to us of Jesus, doesn't it? Of, of Jesus on the cross, who, as he is literally sacrificing himself for us, is caring for all of these other people around him and not all that much for himself. As, as, he's, uh, as he's communicating with a cross, that it, uh, with, a, with a thief who is hanging next to him on the cross, he says, what? Today you will be with me in par paradise. We see him caring for his mother, right? As he is literally hanging on the cross. John, behold your mother, right? He's, he's worried that his mom will be taken care of. We see him even caring for those who are literally in the act of crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, too often we are counting, aren't we? We're counting what we have put out. We are thinking about the energies that we have expended. We're thinking about, we're keeping track of all of the things that we've done for other people, right? We're we're, we're making mental tallies and notes. We are, we are uh, working to make sure that we are seen as the most important or the highest or the, or the one who has earned this respect. And yet we see in the person of Jesus none of this pride, none of this hubris, rather this complete kind of self-emptying, this total and complete humility that even in the process of laying down his very life for the world didn't really think about it all that much. Fascinating. Fascinating. And when I have to like walk a little further at Aldi to give a lady my cart, I'm like, oh my gosh, she should just walk. She's 95. She's got legs right? Be sorry. I've never thought that, FYI. <laughs> Don't think of me like that. 
The truth of the matter is, is that to be a humble person is to think about oneself less, not to think less of oneself. And we, we go about rooting out this pride in our own hearts. You know how we do it? Well, first we attempt to the best of our ability to get to know the most humble person in the history of the world who didn't actually write it about himself, Jesus, right? We get to know the most humble person in the world. And second, we, we actively go about trying to be less prideful, trying to think about ourselves less, trying to move in humility towards other people, to give and to serve and to love others in a way that gets us out of our own head and into their lives. You see, this is the, this is the way in which we uh, root out pride in our own lives. But the truth of the matter is, is that it causes us a lot of pain. Rooting out pride in our own hearts is a painful endeavor. It is not easy. It becomes quite difficult, actually. It's something that uh, when we do it, we have to face kind of the, our own brokenness. And to, and to walk in humility is something that feels unnatural. It feels like putting on a new self. It feels like putting on clothes that don't fit. Because, because it is not natural to us, but it is the way we are called to live. It is the thing that we are, it is the freedom that we are called to live into. You see, pride is the big one. It is the sin from which all other sins flow. It is the, it is the sin that, uh, that caused Satan to be Satan. It is the sin that caused Adam and Eve uh, to take the fruit. And it is the sin that causes us all of our difficulty. If we follow after Jesus, if we, if we learn to, to put aside our pride and step into humility, we actually step into the true rhythm of God's good world. And we are able to live more free. We are able to live more on behalf of others rather than on our own behalf. And what we actually step into, what we actually step into is a flourishing life. It's a flourishing life. And as Lewis says, this is something, this, this pride, this, this orientation that says, I'm not the center of the universe, is not possible unless you make something other than yourself the center of your universe. Until you make something other than yourself the center of your universe, Jesus or God or something, you cannot escape pride because you will default to, to yourself all the time. Most of us do that already, right? But if we look to something bigger, if we look to something uh, other than ourselves as the source of our lives, then pride is something that we can put aside. Then humility is something we can step into. But if we're unwilling to do that, if we're unwilling to look to the person of Jesus, if we're unwilling to set up something of in our lives that's higher or more important than us, then we'll never be free of it. We'll always seek our own ends and our own, what we see as our own best interests. And we'll never seek the best interests of others. We just won't. We just won't. And so this morning, what I'm, what I'm, as, as we conclude here, I just want to pray for you. I just want to pray for you. That you would see that pride, the, the, that God would help you to uncover the pride in your own life. The pride in your own life. Those, that, those areas in your life, whatever they are, what, in, in that list that Paul 
uh, gives us in Colossians. It, what, any of those areas, whether it be pride, whether it be malice, whether it be slander, whether it be anger, whatever it might be, that Jesus would give you the power, the ability, that he would give you grace to walk out, uh, of walk out from under that, that you would put that to death in the language of Paul and Colossians and put on a new self. So let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you uh, for the ability, the very ability to step out from under pride because you have created us and you love us. And you invite us into a flourishing life where we just don't follow rules for rules' sake, but rather, rather we, uh, we observe moral standards. We use moral standards as a key, as a kind of, uh, as a kind of cheat sheet on how to live life and life to the full. And so this morning, God, I pray for all of us, those of us who are struggling with one of these uh, particular moral issues that Paul lists in Colossians, or struggling with any moral issue, whether, uh, whether that moral issue be human sexuality, whether that moral issue be pride, whether that moral issue be uh, anger or lying, whatever it might be, God, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would insert yourself into that situation in our lives, and that we would come to find your way a way of freedom and not bondage, that we would put on a new self, that we would put to death those things in our lives that are not pleasing to you, that don't lead to life, and, and that we would uh, put on the new self that in, with, uh, with your help, and that we would step into all the freedom and all the flourishing that you have for us, that we would not look to our own, what we think is right, that we would not look to what we think uh, is moral or good, but rather that we would trust you and learn God from you to live the life that you've always wanted us to live. So Jesus, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you uh, that you've shown us the way to life, and we ask for the grace to walk in it this morning and this week. So we pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. All right, all right. Well, we're all going to go have Thanksgiving, aren't we? Good, good luck. Uh, uh, go, <laughs> go in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.